Hello, everybody, and welcome to the April 6, 2020 edition of Peaceful Globalist Review. I am your host, the Peaceful Globalist, Ephraim Josine. Okay, so our first order of business is that Andrew Cuomo, New York governor, got into some controversy over the weekend, which at, that po at this point seems like a daily occurrence for Andrew Cuomo. I mean, which state have you heard the most about since this COVID-19 outbreak started? The answer is obviously New York. And it's, I swear, it seems like every day he's getting into some big new event. He is, without a doubt in my mind, the most controversial governor in the U.S. right now. Uh, just wow. But anyway, uh, here's what he tweeted. This was on Saturday. We finally got to... Oh, wait, no, it'd be... Yeah, it'd be Saturday. We finally got some good news today. Good news, everyone! Sorry, I've been watching Futurama all weekend. The Chinese government helped facilitate a donation of 1,000 ventilators that will arrive in JFK today. I think the Chinese government, Jack Ma Tsai, the Jack Ma Foundation, the Tsai Foundation, and Council General Hung, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Um, but anyway, yeah, this is a lot of good news. New York got 1,000 more ventilators, which they are in desperate need of. However, here's the thing I want to focus on. I was reading the replies to this tweet, and there are all these different people who are just really angry that Como dare think a guy who gave him ventilators. This is the first one I saw. It's from a guy named Robbie Starbuck. I'm not even going to make fun of his last name. Uh, <laughs> he just said, China caused this. They are the reason we're in this position. China lied and Americans died as a result. Whatever they do now isn't even close to making up for the damage they've done. They destroyed the global economy and people are dying because they lied for months. Period. You know, I always, I never get why people feel the need to add period at the end of strong statements. Like, we get the sentences over, we get that's a strong statement. And by the way, if you want to express how strong of a statement you're making, you would actually be using like an exclamation point or something. Not a period, that just makes, that just applies to the normal sentence. Something with an exclamation point, that's a big deal. Enough about my rantings on grammar. And for that matter... We know that if, this, if they didn't send him a thousand ventilators, then Starbuck would still be saying they're doing nothing to stop this as well. That's the thing. These people want to get even with China, and then when China is actually trying to help out, trying to get even with the rest of the world, they freak out. They say they can't do that. It's just utterly nonsensical. And the reason being, and I've said this time and time again, this anti-China ideology is just a stepping stone to full-on isolationism. That is what they want. They want a situation where only the U.S. is doing anything involving U.S. politics. They don't believe in global trade in the slightest. If they did and they really did just want to get even with China, they'd be thanking them for bringing in a thousand ventilators. Even, especially if it's their fault, because then that's them taking responsibility and actually trying to help. But no, when they actually do try and help, that's bad because they caused the problem in the first place. 
I guess. You know, I could just imagine how these people deal with, like, per, uh, real situations in their personal life. Like, somebody causes a problem, and then they start trying to fix it. Your response is, well, they're still bad because, what, they started the problem they're trying to fix? Well, okay, I'll give you they shouldn't have caused the problem. And side note, now there's evidence that the coronavirus has been going around since November, that would, would that still make the origin point Wuhan, China? I mean, we thought that it started in, I think it was December or January, because of people eating, you know, wrong types of animals, eating bat soup and things like that, via wet markets in China. But if it turns out that's not actually the origin date is when we thought, does that mean that it's possible the point of origin is also not what we thought it was? But, eh, you know. Uh, but don't worry here, Robbie Starbucks gives us a helpful comparison. If someone cuts my brakes, I drive with seven people in the car, I crash and two people die, but that guy who cut my brakes saves five of us before we bleed out, he isn't a hero. I mean, okay, that's, I guess, fair. But for that matter, the other thing I want to talk about is the absolute sad state, because Republicans have been talking consistently about how we need to move the medical supply chain from China, and yet they're constantly refusing to actually do anything that would stop people from buying Chinese products other than outright prohibition. So now we have a situation where Andrew Cuomo needs ventilators for the state of New York, the administration refuses to give them. They changed the definition of the federal stockpile on their websites, specifically so they don't have to give them any ventilators. And now what we are seeing is people getting angry that Como took medical supplies he needs. That's America first in 2020, actively hoping that people do not get medical supplies they need when it comes from the wrong country? The only way I can describe that at that point, it is a death cult. That's what it is. It's a death cult at that point. If you, honest to God, are angry that China sent ventilators to Andrew Cuomo and the federal government wouldn't because it came from the wrong country, your ideology is a death cult. I'm sorry, but that's the only way I can describe it at this point. Just when you value your own ideological basis over the actual lives of the citizens you claim to be fighting for, first off, don't claim you're America first. You are not America first. Your ideology first. Your cult first. But second off, the rest of it. At that point, you would just rather have people die in the streets as long as it doesn't mean we import all that dirty Chinese medical technology. And at that point, I just don't know what to say to you. You aren't worth even debating with on Twitter, let alone being a government official, and yet so many of these people are in Congress in forms of Senator Holly or Representative Chip, and even the president to some extent. Just sad. Anyway, the other main reason, by the way, I was talking about this over the course of these past several weeks, 
why I think this anti-China ideology has been forming in the U.S. is, first off, I just think it's part of the rise of full-on nationalism, and you can open with a country that a lot of Americans do take issue with. And second, I think it's because the administration doesn't want to be blamed for the COVID-19 outbreak. And there are many ways you can blame it. This is one I just found recently. Uh, this is from the Los Angeles Times. It was published on the 2nd. And, uh, dang it. Dang it, Los Angeles Times. You had to give me a pop-up. Uh, Trump administration ended pandemic early warning programs to detect coronavirus. Uh, this is by Emily, I'm probably going to mispronounce this name, Bagmagardner. Bagmagardner. Um, again, as mentioned, and James Rainey, and as mentioned, this is from Los Angeles Times. Two months before the novel coronavirus is thought to have begun its deadly advance in Wuhan, China, the Trump administration ended a $200 million pandemic early warning program aimed at training scientists in China and other countries to detect and respond to such a threat. Okay, so immediately this goes against their narrative that it is 100% fully the Chinese's fault because they had been receiving some amount of training from us in the first place through that program. And now what we find out is the president just got rid of it. Welp. The project launched by U.S. Agency for International Development in 2009 identified 1,200 different viruses that had the potential to erupt into, into pandemics, including more than 160 novel coronaviruses. The initial or the initiative called Predict also trained and supported staff in 60 foreign laboratories, including the Wuhan lab that identified SARS-CoV-2, the new coronavirus that caused COVID-19. Field work ceased when the funding ran out in September, and organizations that worked on the Predict program laid off dozens of scientists and analysts, said Peter DeZark, president of EcoHealth Alliance, a key player in this program. On Wednesday, USAID granted an emergency extension to the program, including $2.26 million over the next six months. So they were previously getting $200 million a year. Now they're getting... What? What is that? That'd be $2.26 million. Even if that went on annually, that'd still be less than a 40th, or I think that would be about a 40th of what they were previously getting. Congratulations, Mr. President. To send experts who will help foreign labs watch the pandemic. But program leaders say the funding will do little to further the initiative's original mission. Look at the name. Our efforts were to predict this before it happened. That's part of the program that was exciting. And that's the part I'm worried about, Dazik said. It's absolutely critical that we don't drop the idea of a large-scale, proactive, predictive program that ties to catch pandemics before they happen. Cutting a program that could in any way reduce the risk of things like COVID-19 happening again by any measure short-sighted, or is by any measure short-sighted, he added. It is unclear whether another five-year grant would have dulled the impact of the current pandemic. But the Trump administration has come under increased criticism for its past move to downgrade global health security. Well, no duh, that's what you're all expecting to happen. 
He was so he downgrades global health, and the next thing we know, bam, there's a giant pandemic across across the nation. Wow. <laughs> but remember, guys, it's actually the fault of China. Um, including proposals to slash funding the science agencies and the elimination of the National Security Council's key global health post. A spokesman for USAID said PREDICT was, quote, just one component of USAID's global health security efforts and accounted for less than 20% of our global health security funding. He also said that a new initiative to stop a spillover of viruses from animals to humans is scheduled to be awarded in August. The PREDICT program, which operated on two five-year funding cycles that formally concluded last September, enrolled both epidemiologists and wildlife veterinarians to examine the types of interactions between animals and humans that, research, that researchers suspected led to the current outbreak of COVID-19. Again, this is all from a $200 million program the administration got rid of. And I think that was $200 million. Would it be $200 million? I'm going to double-check the exact way it was phrased 200 million okay it just says i'm going to it's probably over a decade but i'll give it the benefit of the doubt and say annually 200 million annually our federal budget is 4.2 trillion dollars this was not about cutting costs that we needed at the time of increased debt in fact if you remember the president increased the budget gigantically over his past um, several years for his entire term Instead, what this is, is just pure incompetence. That's the best way to sum it up. It's pure incompetence. And if you want to know how well disease was going to be treated in this administration, remember the vice president governed in Indiana. He was the governor of Indiana, Mike Pence, over this giant HIV spike. You guys remember that? And he ignored CDC recommendations that found needle exchange programs be effective. So, of course, this was going to happen. Who's not, who is surprised at this point? And now they're trying to blame China primarily because then they get what they always wanted, which is full-on nationalist isolationism. There's no other way to put it. What they want is isolationism, and they're using this as an excuse. And, you know, there are theories that this was developed in a bio lab by the Chinese government as some sort of um, biological weapon. What if it was a bioweapon by the American government? Now, it's probably not. Do not say it is. In fact, it never, ever say it is. Ever. However, no, it isn't. <laughs> One American News ran that special, I think it was last week, that said that it was created in a lab in North Carolina. I might start believing that at this point. This all just seems so orchestrated, like they were begging a global pandemic because they probably were, because it helps them politically in just so many different ways. Anyway, I should probably get back to the article. The pandemic, quote, didn't surprise us, unfortunately, said John Massett, executive director of the One Health Institute and UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. Well, it doesn't surprise anyone who actually has been following this in the slightest. My God, you give Mike Pence the keys and then what do you think is going to happen? Who served as the global director of PREDICT for a decade. 
Quote, the work has been ongoing for some time, and when the crisis hits, everyone stands up and takes notice and says, okay, we believe you. The PREDICT project, launched in response to the 2005 H5N1 bird flu scare, gathered specimens from more than 10,000 bats and 2,000 other mammals in search of dangerous viruses. Man, would have been great to have that information. They detected about 1,200 viruses that could spread that spread from wild animals to humans, signaling pandemic potential. More than 160 of them were novel coronavirus. Oh, wait, I already read that part. I never went back in. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. But either way, I think those statements were important to reread, so, eh. But no, I think you guys get the point. That being... What can you even think? Actually, I think the last paragraph sums this up perfectly. It's common sense to know your enemy, Dazic said. Instead, we're all hiding inside our houses as we wait around for a vaccine. That's not a good global strategy for battling a dangerous virus. Exactly. Exactly. This administration did not want to know its enemy, because if it knew its enemy, it may have effectively fought it ahead of time. If China knew its enemy... Maybe, just maybe, it wouldn't have actually gotten outside there in the first place. And maybe we wouldn't have this chance to restrict trade and possibly reroute our entire uh, trade policy. Which, again, is not what these people want. Uh, wow. Just, just wow. Wow, guys. This whole thing is, oh my god. Anyway... Figured I should talk about this. Bill Mitchell, if you don't know, he's one of Trump's chief apologists. I first found out about him when he was one of the few remaining America First guys who was defending Trump's Syria strike against people like Ben Garrison and Paul Joseph Watson. His take on COVID-19 so far has been amazing. I'm just going to read you guys this. Uh, this is March 7th. 17 Americans, mostly elderly and sick already, have died from COVID-19 and the left is ready to bury this country. I can't decide which is worse, their evil hearts or their idiot brains. Okay. March 21st. 257 Americans have died and we are literally shutting down the whole country. I have lived a long time, but this is the most insane shit I have ever seen. Okay. Uh, March 30th. So if we get less than 200,000 COVID-19 deaths in America, can we all agree that Trump is the greatest president of all time? Well, we all know any thought from Bill Mitchell ends with, can we all agree Trump is the greatest president of all time? So that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. I like how that goes from though. All of a sudden, I'm going to recheck the numbers. Uh... So 17 dying is no big deal, according to the guy. Okay, okay. However, it's less than 200,000 die now. We jump from 17 to 200,000 before all of a sudden, okay, the president, it may not be the greatest of all time. Maybe the second. And then, lastly, this is from April 5th. This is yesterday. While death is sad for the living left behind, for the dying it is merely a passage out of this physical body to a spiritual existence. Free this mortal coil. If one turns off the radio, the music is still there. For all we know, the dead weep for us. 
Um, again, you guys see why I call them a death cult. Because that's literally what they are at that point. That is the worship of death. That is the, I'm going to steal a term from some idiot on town hall, culture of death. This idea that actually death is a beautiful thing, a great thing, a thing that maybe the people who already have experienced envy us or um, weep for us for because it's so amazing. That is more culture of death than, I don't know, Terry Schiavo or whatever the heck Terry Schilling is still complaining about. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then, he gave us quite possibly... The greatest thing ever tweeted. You ready? We lost six million people during the Holocaust. Did we shut down our economy then? Of course not. This is pure insanity. So my first feeling is somebody should tell them that we didn't lose six million people. Um, the Jewish did, and the Jewish aren't us. Okay? <laughs> Second off, if you want to actually look at the total deaths in the Holocaust, it was about 11 million. Third off, the majority of Americans died during World War II when we, were, when we definitely shut the economy off. That's why we were engaging in point systems and rationing. Just wow. We literally had systems in place that made sure that you could only buy certain amounts of food if you had a certain amount of children, because we had to shut down the economy so it could all be given to the war effort. And for that matter, and this is the other important thing, the Holocaust was Nazi Germany's economy. <laughs> that was where the vast majority of any spending went, to the war effort, and specifically to the Holocaust. Those camps employed tons of people, dude. That was the economy. And can I just say, you are insane in every regard, and I truly, truly hope you never gain any influence. Wow. Anyway, our last topic for tonight, Michael Lind, who, if you don't remember, is that guy who in 2013 wrote that Salon article where he basically asked, if libertarianism is so great, why is it no country completely lines up with your ideology? Which I could respond with, well, what country lines up with your ideology, Michael Lind? In fact, that's how I want everyone to respond anytime Michael Lind calls for any kind of changes. Well, what country completely follows what you believe? Anyway, he wrote this uh, article from Tablet Magazine a few weeks ago, but I only saw it recently because it was shared by both Matthew Schultz and Josh Hammer, so you know it's great. It's called, The Coronavirus Didn't Cause This Crisis By Itself, But Kenzie Helped. Uh, I'm going to skip a little bit out of it because they're just, oh my god. If we ignore the ritual partisan debates and try to be as objective as possible, I think we can agree that the pandemic has exposed two weaknesses in contemporary American society. The loss of critical manufacturing capabilities and the decline of one earner family. Um, that's the other thing I want to focus on. I want to focus on the decline of the one earner family comment because that is the basis of the parts of this article that's actually worth talking about. But I'll still read a good amount of the rest. 
The loss of manufacturing capacity means the U.S. is forced to import from China and other countries essential products that it used to make inside its own borders. Many drugs and their chemical processors, large supplies of ventilators and safety masks, and so on. The decline of the one-earner family and its corollary, the breadwinner wage that could support it, magnifies the social crisis caused by the closure of public schools in the interest of reducing cognition. I am not defending any other aspects of the 1950s when I observed that a global pandemic in that era would not have caused these problems in the United States. The U.S., the leading industrial power in the world, still recovering from global total war, was almost wholly taken, providing most of it what it needed from its own factories, including pharmaceutical factories. And because World War II and the late 20th century, most married mothers were full or part-time homemakers or caregivers instead of full-time workers while their children were young. So whose brilliant idea was it to outsource the production of these critical medical supplies and life-saving medicines to China, an authoritarian mercantilist state hostile to U.S. global homogeny? And whose idea was it to replace the one-earner family with the two-earner household as the norm? Well, here's the main issue with this article, is that the one-earner family, as he calls it, was never really the norm. Now, back during the farming era, when most people worked on farms, it was both parents worked at home. Now, they did do different things. Um, it was typically the father would you know, work the animals and plow the fields and all of that, and the mother would just make sure the kids aren't annoying the father until the kid was old enough to work with the father. Um, but that is really not what he means. He means that kind of 50 suburbs, which never actually existed. Even in the industrial era, women worked in coal mines and textile factories alongside the men because they needed the money. Now, after World War II, as he talks about, there was a great prosperity. However, it's not so much that one guy came along and decided that that should all be different. It was more reality was just catching back up. The fact is we could get away with that for a very brief period of time because we had no competitors. So by default, you're the most prosperous. If you wanted to buy a Bolt, you bought it from either the U.S. or the Soviet Union. And most people picked the U.S. in that regard. Um... So this sort of mystical time of one-earner families never actually existed at a large scale. So immediately that's a huge issue, but I'll let the guy continue for a little bit longer. The answer in both cases is American businesses aided by ideologues, libertarian ideologies in the case of offshoring, and so-called corporate feminists in the case of family structures. As we shall see, the present dominant form of feminism is only one among several schools. And in both cases, the motivation of American businesses was the same, reducing the wages it had to pay the American worker. So, okay... I've heard this claim before, and it's never actually made any sense. According to this idea, first off, wages are primary set by supply and demand. The supply of people who are willing to do that job, who can do that job. The fact is, there was never a time where a waiter would make a living wage, primarily because there were so many people, men and women, who could become waiters or waitresses. So immediately there's already kind of a disadvantage there in terms of, don't get me wrong, there are other factors, that's the very, very basic part. And for that matter, if you actually look at the numbers, women start entering the workforce, they always started re-entering the workforce in large numbers in the 60s or so, 
we didn't see any sort of wage decrease since then. We saw some stagnation later on if you want to go pure dollars, although by purchasing power, it still has increased drastically. But there was never a decrease like these guys want to pretend there was. Minus, well, I guess minus some examples in the 70s, but that was primarily due to stagflation, not due to women coming in and entering the workforce and driving down all our wages. No, it was the energy crisis. <laughs> you want to know what caused anything that he's going to blame in this article? It was the energy crisis. Let's begin with offshoring. Unbundling is a term popularized by McKenzie and other consulting firms and business theorists in the 1990s for the process of dismantling the pride of post-war American capitalism. Well, I mean, by that point, we had already sort of moved away from the Eisenhower era. We really moved away from the idea of decently regulated capitalism, starting under Reagan, which was 10 years beforehand. And Reagan was also a bit of a free trader himself. If you actually read what he was up to, that's why um, one of the first major films to criticize free trade, Roger and Me, by Michael Moore, that was made during the Reagan era about situations that happened, and that was the 80s. So immediately, if it was popularized in the 90s, what, what are you talking about, is my question. Vertically integrated industrial behemoths like GM and IBM. Vertical integration had been a mistake. The consulting claim with the passion of the evangelicalists. There was no need for massive industrial complexes in which iron and coke and pharmaceuticals went in on, at one end and steel and plastic cars or refrigerators came out the other. With unionized, well-paid workers with generous benefits laboring on assembly lines in between, businesses should force on their core, comp core competencies and try to replace production, finance, and bookkeeping with arm-length contracts with external contracts. In the last half century, most major corporations have unbundled. I thought this started in the 90s. Now we're talking about half century. That would have been the 70s onwards. Do you have, like, any understanding of time, Michael Lind? They have become original equipment manufacturers, OEMs, a somewhat misleading name since they are really brand managers that orchestrate chains of external suppliers in the U.S. and around the world. They have not only outsourced much... Side note, it would be offshore in this case, not, not outsourced, but just, just a little nitpick. Much of all their production of their own products, oh, I was worried they were doing production of other product, of products that weren't theirs, third parties, but also offshore, there you go, much of it to contractors in China and elsewhere. Apple is not really a U.S. corporation, it is a Chinese enterprise with headquarters and exclusivities in the U.S. As I have documented in my book, The New Class War, very, very great title, by the way, the pattern of offshoring outsourcing, of offshore outsourcing to China, Mexico, and India is explained almost all, plain almost entry by labor abridging. That is the search for cheap non-union labor, the same search that has led to parallel transfers of manufacturing by U.S. corporations from high-wage pro-union states in the Northeast and Midwest to anti-union, low-wage states of the former Confederacy. It is doubtful that American consumers have benefited much from lower prices as... Wait, what? As a result of offshoring? Really? Really? Even other critics don't admit that. <laughs> okay, buddy. 
$10 says he has an iPhone. That is my full response. I didn't even notice that until I was like halfway through the sentence because I was just not used to somebody making. Everyone else admits it's at least created more production or at least, and more consumable products. That's their issue with it. That's people like Sohar Marami's issue with it is that it makes consuming too easy. And he is anti-consumerist. Yet he also has not developed an eating disorder, so he may be a bit of a hypocrite. That was a horrible joke, and to any anti-consumerist listening, I do not encourage you to develop an eating disorder. Uh, <laughs> wait, we haven't? Really, dude? I remember Shane Killian did this a while ago. I think it was 2016. He determined that in order to get everything that's currently in an iPhone that you could have gotten pre-NAFTA, it would have cost like four grand. And that's in 1993 money. And not including things that you couldn't do, like video chatting. Uh, the gains from lower wage bills have gone mostly to executives and shareholders. No, there's not a sliver, there's not a bit of evidence for that. Um, but okay. And here's my response. If that's the case, why do you, Mr. Democracy supporter Michael Lynn, if that is really true that the people do not like free trade why do the majority still approve of NAFTA to this day? After an almost three-decade-long smear campaign led by people like you. Thanks, Mackenzie, for encouraging U.S. companies to cut wage costs by offshoring essential medicine and medical gear products from the U.S. to China. What could possibly go wrong? Um, apparently, they also did that before they did that, considering you have a horrible understanding of time. The replacement of vertically integrated corporations with the OEM sitting like spiders at the center of the web of transmittal supply chains did collateral damage to American society by blowing up the mid-20th century social contract between employers and workers. During World War II, the federal government pressured American businesses into a truce with organized labor, which lasted for a generation after the war. The truce was limited in extent. It didn't apply to the American South, and it was limited largely to manufacturing sectors, leaving out much of the service sector, whose workers were disproportionately female and non-white. Uh, great system, by the way. Nevertheless, the, the triplet system of government broker broke business union negotiation for a time-set standard in the private sector for wages and benefits. So, uh, my only response is this guy actually has no idea how Family structures have worked throughout history, how, outside of this made-up version he got from watching I Love Lucy launch 20 years ago, he has no understanding of the economy, he has no understanding of time. He is just a rambler. He just rambles on these really long essays where he has a thesaurus out the entire time. It's just awful. It is awful. Michael Lynn, you are awful, and I'm Ephraim, and good night.